Welcome to Green City, a podcast focused on sustainability. I'm your host, Lene Marty Henson. We invite you to listen in on our conversations for positive change. It is my hope that we can all come away with something that resonates within our own lives and inspires us to action within our own communities. Let's start where we are and find ways to work together to create more connected, more vibrant, and indeed more sustainable communities. Join us each week as we learn from each other. Hello, this is Katrin Claussen, and today I am back as a guest host. Right now, we are talking with Aubrey Alvarez, the co-founder and executive director of Eat Greater Des Moines. Aubrey graduated from the University of Northern Iowa with a Bachelor of Arts in Health Promotion and from Drake University with a Master's in Public Administration. In addition to co-founding Eat Greater Des Moines in April of 2013, she is part of the leadership team for the Iowa Hunger Coalition, Regional Food System Working Group, and Hunger-Free Dallas County Coalition. She is also a member of other organizations that work with food insecurity and waste. Thank you for joining me today, Aubrey. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So since you are a returning guest to this podcast, why don't you start with catching us all up with how you got to where you are today and how Eat Greater Des Moines has changed since uh, last spring or spring of 2021? Well, you know, time is a little flat right now. It feels like everything's changed and then nothing's changed all mm-hmm. at the same time. So um, Eat Greater Des Moines is a, a small nonprofit that's really working to just build the food system through partnership and collaboration and filling connections. So, um, you know, last time we talked, a big part of our work has always been in food rescue and food recovery and trying to make sure that all of the amazing food that's produced and raised and ready to eat here in our community gets to meet the ultimate purpose. So um, trying to make food rescue happen in so that it's easy for food businesses and food donors, but also really easy for all the organizations that need that food to, to have access to it. So that has continued and changed a little bit. We also just recently, um, are now have access to warehouse space with walk-in coolers and freezers, which is um, very much kind of a whole new world, but it's really allowing us to do uh, kind of play a more critical role within the local food system and just helping local farmers and producers and also having just more options and safe storage um, for larger food rescue opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh, I remember when I uh, moved, first moved to Des Moines, closer to that time, I came to an Eat Greater Des Moines event uh, where volunteers were harvesting apples. So do you want to talk a little bit about that harvesting and gleaning that you uh, kind of talk about on your website and what kind of people you see showing up to help with that? Yeah, gleaning is uh, one of my favorite uh food rescue opportunities, just because it's really an opportunity for those of us who don't get to harvest, you know, food all the time. And it's Mm -hmm. more to a novelty for a lot of us. And gleaning is really just the process of collecting any excess produce from on the farm. And for us here, that generally looks like gleaning from apple trees and pear and peach trees. We've done sweet corn before, Um, but really it's a great opportunity to, um, just 
for volunteers to get outside and do harvesting. Many hands makes light work. So a lot of us can pick a lot of apples or peaches or pears in a short amount of time and then make sure all of that, some of it always goes home, can go home with the volunteers, but then the rest of it goes out to our food rescue network. So we're able to, you know, I think uh, that day we're able to move, you know, pick a, a thousand pounds of apples relatively quickly. And they're the best, you know, these are organic, fresh, just picked from the tree. And then we get them directly to places where they can be eaten. And, you know, I think it's just kind of a win-win for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to working on those gardens and farms and whatever uh, land is like available on city property, um, You also work with schools, and I will say that one uh, obstacle that I've seen students at my school facing, which is uh, Valley High School in West Des Moines, is that we don't have a fridge to store the food. So how do you work with those students who are feeling those challenges of uh, to trying to get the school to be more sustainable or uh, just help um, the school have uh, schools that are in need of food in general? Yeah, well, and I think you bring up a great point because schools are one place where there's a lot of food waste. There's a lot of food waste opportunity. And I think, you know, you know, going to school and I have, you know, younger girls that are in school, it just seems odd to me that we would, you know, we're teaching kids so much at school. And the one thing that sometimes there's not consistency with is with food, you know, no time Mm -hmm. at home where if I gave my kids, you know, a carton of milk or a package of food and they didn't want it, then we would throw it in the garbage. Like that's not how we operate here, but for some reason, that's how we've really set up schools to say, we're going to have, you know, our, the school lunch program. And then anything that doesn't get consumed goes in the garbage. And, you know, I think it's been promising to see some more schools, you know, I think the pandemic pre pandemic, we saw more schools doing no thank you and sharing tables so that students had options when there were, when they had extra food, but it also gave you know, school staff an option as well, because I don't think anybody likes throwing perfectly good food away. So, you know, Valley's been a great um, one where there were some students there who were interested in trying to take the lead in, you know, Mm -hmm. being the kind of the labor at the, at the lunch period. So having a student that could stand by, you know, and collect the items and then having, whether it's a cooler or, you know, school staff, to be able to put those items and then take it to a fridge. Um, And Valley was actually, it's one of our first activities refrigerators. So Mr. Rose, Brad Rose there Mm -hmm. at school, we had been taking um, come and go food recovery there. So, you know, that's also a place where other school, you know, food recovery could go as well and just having it available for anybody who is at the school afterwards or for any activity to use. And, you know, we're starting to see more um, refrigerators like that, where we're calling them activities fridges and less something that needs to be in a food pantry. I think a lot of times if schools have had, you know, food rescue opportunities, the food is always in a food pantry, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but there's a lot of times stigma that goes along with using a food pantry and, you know, it's usually in a special spot. And so it can just be complicated. Whereas by putting these refrigerators, you know, it's like a community refrigerator, but at school, you know, the community looks a little different. So it's in the school and not every, I couldn't just walk in from the outside and go use it, but any student or parent or staff who is there 
could use it. And, you know, that's really been a huge way to get more students involved in kind of being the change vocally at their school and just making it easy for them to grab something to eat beforehand. So Waukee or Valley actually kind of kicked things off and now we're starting to see them in Waukee and we had staff or schools in Iowa City, Des Moines that are also doing the same thing. And I think that's the biggest thing for us is anywhere there's people, we should have food available Mm -hmm. and anywhere there's food, we need to make sure that we're being responsible and that it's, you know, any extras being rescued. So by making sure more places have refrigerators and cold storage, that just gets us one step closer to making it much easier for us to safely put food there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you find that those like students, community members, and even like higher up city officials are willing to learn about an area that they might not really know about and you have a lot of expertise about, are they willing to listen to you? Mm, Well, that kind of depends. You know, I think, you know, this is something where we, for a long time and with food waste and food recovery, um, a lot of times, even when I first got started, you know, when we talked about, you know, recovering food, first thing that comes up is, oh, what about safety? Safety. And I can appreciate safety. I think I, I'm always wondering, like, if people could be more specific, like what specifically about safety? If this food was okay for me to purchase five minutes ago, what happened to it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the five minutes from now, we're not going to sell it or it's not available. So, you know, that part always gets a little wishy-washy. Legality always comes up. And, you know, I think the part there that the federal government passed a law in 1996 that protects donors from civil or criminal liability when they donate food. You know, that was 1996. Like that's when I graduated high school. It has been a very long time. Food recovery has been happening for a very long time. And, but for some reason, a lot of places are finding excuses to not be involved. And I think, you know, that's really kind of where now, um, Eager to Des Moines is small. You know, we are a full-time staff Mm -hmm. of two people. We have our drivers, but ultimately what's going to move this work forward and actually make it so that it's commonplace that we, of course we do food recovery. Why wouldn't we, you know, it doesn't make any sense to throw away perfectly good food. The only way that's going to happen is when students and when people that are outside of Eat Greater Des Moines and outside of this work ask about it and keep asking about it and keep following up about it to say, "Mm, you know, okay, so tell me more about why you think Mm -hmm. you can't participate and what does it take? What would it take for you to get involved? And, you know, that kind of persistence and going back, I think is really what's going to make it harder for people to ignore. You know, it's really easy to ignore one or two, you know, they might consider you know, just loud mouths and obnoxious, but, you know, it's really a lot harder when you have hundreds, thousands of people saying the same thing about like, but we want you to do better and we know you can do better and we're here happy to help you do better, but we want you, you know, it's no longer okay just to say, no, that's not for us. Mm-hmm. And who do you find are your most valuable partners or organizations that have helped you? Cause I know you said, Eat Greater Des Moines depends on people outside of the organization to get things going as well. So who do you find the most helpful in increasing your range of influence? Yeah. 
Well, you know, I think that's really where all of our partners that we take food to have been incredible. And especially those that are not traditionally within the emergency food system. So, you know, we have quite a few partners and we saw we gained over 100 partners during the pandemic of just people and groups who just stepped in. You know, their main job, full-time job is not food rescue and food recovery or serving food to people, but they saw the need and they had a relationship with people or were near groups of people who could use food and they figured it out. They reached out and said, yes, we'd have a community fridge or, you know, places and people like Zuli Garcia, who started knock and drop by just collecting items, knocking and leaving them on doorsteps and of within the Latino community. And now, you know, they're a complete separate organization. You know, people like Zuli and Monica with Sweet Tooth Farms are, you know, two great examples of women who not only stepped in to figure things out, they keep stepping in, you know, even when it's hard and they're not only doing the work and being the change I want, we want to see in the community, they're inspiring others to get involved as well and making it, you know, Monica was one of the first, um, like we had one community fridge at a library um, prior to December, 2020, but then Monica with Sweet Tooth Farm was the first community fridge in Iowa. And, you know, that's, now we have almost 40 in just our area. Mm-hmm. And that's because Monica stepped forward and, you know, wanted to work with others, with us and with others in the community to try something out to, you know, try to take a different approach to feeding people. And that's really what makes my job, our job much easier because we're not feeding any people directly. That's the important work that other, you know, all of these partners are doing and, none of this would be possible. All this food that we're trying to capture, we can't do anything with it. But now we have hundreds of places that can take it and we'll make sure that it gets out to those in need. And that's really, they're the ones who are really like making a difference and moving the work forward. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And earlier you mentioned um, the pandemic. I'm sure that was an interesting challenge. Um, But since then, as Des Moines is like emerging from that, um, are you continuing the Operation Fresh Produce Drop uh, because it was successful? Um, and have you seen like lower numbers of organizations you're working with or higher or how has the pandemic affected that? Yeah. I wish we were still doing Operation Fresh Produce Drop. You know, the reason and why that got started was the pandemic and because where food, you know, there was still excess food, but instead of it being at event locations and schools because all of the restaurants and places closed, all of that fresh produce was at wholesale, you know, distributors. So that's really where our fresh produce drop started was, you know, having larger quantities of fresh food, but then also having just so many more people who needed food and some of those traditional locations where you were getting it, whether it was a food pantry or a congregate meal site, you know, a lot of them closed. And so that's where we saw faith group you know, faith-based groups and refugee and immigrant groups and other nonprofits that don't traditionally serve food stepping in. And Mm -hmm. it turned into the USDA Farmers to Family Food Box Program. And at the height of it, we were moving 2,300 boxes a week to over 60 organizations. And they were full of fresh produce, protein, dairy items. It was incredible. Unfortunately, um, the USDA 
the, that program ended in May of 2021. And, you know, the real, um, what was the worst part about that were 80% of the groups that we had been serving are not eligible to get food through the food bank of Iowa. So while, you know, there was, um, we were seeing our, our local food bank and feeding America advocating for that program to end so that those funds could just go into what they consider the traditional emergency feeding network that left out, you know, 75, 80% of the groups that we were serving and there was no option for them. So, you know, that's really, I think, um, kind of been what we're continuing to talk about is, you know, we can't just look at our food pantries and food banks and say, it's up to you alone. You're the only ones that can do it. They've been trying to do it by themselves. You know, Food Bank of Iowa just celebrated their 40th anniversary. They cannot do it by themselves. So Mm -hmm. the more opportunity we have to have some of these other partners fill the gaps is, you know, really what's going to make sure that everyone does have enough to eat. So, you know, it's unfortunate that that program ended. We are just in the beginning of, it's somewhat similar because the federal government is putting food to purchase locally produced fruits, you know, food, protein, dairy, vegetables, but um, the budget is much, much smaller and it's going to go much faster, but it's, it is nice to have, you know, this, all this amazing food locally produced. Um, But I'm really hoping that that program, the USDA farmers to families program, while there were definitely challenges, you know, when you put a program that large together that fast for the first time, there were definitely challenges and things that could be better, but the, the good by far outweighed the bad in that one. And I'm hoping that it's something that will be considered and replicated potentially in the upcoming farm bill. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of those challenges and the ways you've overcome them, what are some other challenges that you've faced maybe with other organizations or just because this is a hard field that you're working in? It is. It's surprisingly Mm -hmm. hard, I think, is what's been surprising to me, you know, coming into this work, not from the traditional food system space, You know, I just came into it thinking, you know, why wouldn't we all be working together? We're all working towards the same thing. And I think as we've gotten closer to systems changing and things actually being different, you know, change is uncomfortable. Change doesn't happen because everyone who's in power is like, oh, this feels great. We would just love to cede some of this power. And, you know, if that Mm -hmm. was the case, things would be different now. But we're finding that, you know, a lot of these places who maybe say that they're supportive of this work, when it comes right down to it, and they're put in a situation to choose between their mission or money, that they choose money. And that's unfortunate. And I think over the last, you know, few months have been, you know, really tough after, you know, groups and organizations that we've partnered with since the beginning of the organization, you know, coming out and, you know, making it clear that where their priorities lie is in status quo and not trying to do things differently. Because again, you know, for some of these organizations, we were recently, you know, United Way of Central Iowa after nine years decided to defund uh, our organization and, you know, which any organization is allowed to not fund an organization at any time. I think what was frustrating was the reason um, United Way gave for not funding was not only not true, it was, you know, it really kind of 
skated past the reason why they were upset that I talked about not doing food recovery from their Live United event at Prairie Meadows. I understand that that was an upsetting situation. They didn't want me to talk about it publicly. However, this is the situations that we're using to try and talk about why this is tricky, why this is difficult when, you know, in that situation, um, United Way has the power. They're planning the event. You can decide, you know, you can talk to your event there. You can talk to the location about incorporating food recovery in your plan. And if they say no, all right, you have the choice to have it somewhere else. There are plenty of locations around the community that not only do food recovery, that they lead with food recovery and they're doing a good job. So it was really disappointing to see, you know, in that situation where it was an opportunity to, I think, learn and grow and say, you know what, we messed up this time, but we're, we've learned and we're going to do it better next time. They decided to try to defame me and the organization and say that, you know, we've been a problem for, for years, which, you know, that's not true. And mm-hmm. it's frustrating, but it's also, I guess it's helpful. It, on the other hand, too, to have clarity about where mm-hmm. people are. I think, you know, again, it's not just what groups say, it's what their action, their actions, you know, and what they do. And so that's really, I think for a lot of these places, groups that say they care about food insecurity, care about the environment, care about people to say that, but then have your actions not follow that, that shows you where people are. And so, you know, I think that's kind of the part where there's so much food, so much opportunity in our community. The only reason people are hungry is because we continue to allow people to be hungry. We have more food here than we can even use. But until the people in charge that have the ability to make some of these decisions very simply make those decisions, groups like ours are going to continue to keep pushing forward and trying to lift up into the light conversations about some of these things. Because I think when people talk about it, they're like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Why can't we do that differently? And that's really all we can really depend on right now is more people saying, that doesn't make sense. Why can't we do that differently? And then, you know, then we'll have some of these uh, food businesses say yes and be ready to move forward instead of hanging out and just not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. And as we wrap up here, um, despite these challenges that you've faced, especially recently, what brings you hope? Um, I think what brings me hope is, you know, we knew when we launched our food rescue app um, that's people can now download on the um, whether it's Google Play or Apple Store. We launched that in June of 2020. And you know, with and we knew there would be people out there in the community who wanted to help with food recovery. And when we launched the app, we had had we had over 600 people sign up to volunteer to pick up and deliver food within the first couple months. And I think, you know, that really is what's giving me hope is just to see how many people who are not only, you know, that they're stepping in, you know, and they're asking questions and they're saying something. And I think, you know, that's what gives me hope is that even if I wasn't here, even if we weren't here, that things are started and things are getting going so that this work will keep going regardless. You know, if I'm frustrated, you know, we have enough people out there who are also passionate about it and empowered and see what's possible, you know, not only through the work we've been doing, but just starting to see, you know, with how much food we still have here, what's still possible. You know, I 
really excited to see kind of where we're going to be in another year or two, because we've got a lot of really smart, capable, um, passionate people out in the community who are just starting to get involved in this work. And I think they're really going to help the rest of us kind of move, you know, really move, uh, change some of these systems that have been holding us back for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Well, we're all excited to see where it goes as well. Um, Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Aubrey. Um, And listeners, be sure to check out the Eat Greater Des Moines website because there are many great resources like uh, where to find food pantries um, and uh, ways to volunteer. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this edition of Green City. I'm Lene Marty Henson, and I hope you continue to listen in on these conversations focused on the broad realm of sustainability. I truly believe that we go further faster when we come together to have real dialogue, inspiring us toward practical solutions. Let's continue to learn from each other how best to nurture this precious planet we call home. Thanks for listening. We are truly grateful.